G'day, and thank you for joining us on the Outpost Church podcast. I trust that this teaching from our church camp, which came to us from Dave and Ruth Ridley out of the book of Ephesians, will be a blessing to you. We pray that it hits you where you need to be hit, and we pray that you are able to apply this for your good, for the good of those around you, and for the glory of God. God bless you. Well, to my jokes, <laughs> might uh, crack over some people. Christy showed you some of her repertoire this morning at breakfast. Went out quite well, you know. Considering, considering with breakfast. You know, <laughs> usually. Yeah, my, yeah. Uh, my, my jokes need to be like deliriously tired, <laughs> and then I'll bring on my jokes. Because Christy's at that good breakfast time. <laughs> <laughs> she'll just, she'll just uh, crack it open and hit you. It was a dry day, go now. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> Oh, no, pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's my phone? <laughs> <laughs> Always be ready. You don't have a season. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always about that. Um, I can't think of one. Um, so, here we are. Ephesians. Who enjoyed Ruth this morning? Um, yeah. I did. Any chance to look at her for a couple of hours? Time well spent. Um, for me, that is. Um, um, yes, yeah, thank you, Ruth. That was, I think that Ruth, her passion um, for the scriptures, and I think because I get to live with her and I see her consistency, it just blesses me so much um, seeing, seeing her share. So, I want to just frame up Ephesians. I'm going to summarise an idea in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then I want to camp in Ephesians 4, and then springboard off that. And I want to share with you guys something that, um, something that I didn't know for my whole life, that has a profound impact upon our nation, and um, it's to do with how the gospel came to our nation. And, uh, I hope it inspires you, so look, look forward to that. Ephesians 2 verse 10, I can even quote it to you because I've, I've camped in this verse so much. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that, <laughs> and we'll read it somewhere. I might forget it, stage fright. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This kind of sums up really nicely this idea of in Christ, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then four good works, 4, 5, and 6. Okay. Every time I read the word good works, in the David Bidley translation in my head, it means change the world. Right? That, that may be a big thing or a small thing, but I read this verse this way, that we've, uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what, to change the world, and these change the world things God's prepared beforehand for us to walk in there. 
good works. You're created to change the world around you. Good works. Your identity, who you are, should then look like something through your life. Okay. Turn the page with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Here's a little distracting for me, though. I'm like... Sorry. She's too cute. Again, pets and babies are not completely... Love you, Danielle. Okay. So, you are created in Christ Jesus. The Bible says for good works. Good works is not it's off like, you know, um, I'm credited for intimacy with God or good works. It, it, it's actually, it's both. Yeah. But the evidence of intimacy with God will be fruitfulness, right? will be good works, okay? I want to show that one here, we'll come back to it. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, um, well, firstly, I'll just, I'll just, in terms of like the Bible structure, the reason why it changes, it pivots from 1, 2, 3 to 4, 5, 6, in, in 4 verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so now Paul's is Establish the identity of the believer, right? Sonship, all this amazing stuff in terms of who we are. He exhorts us to, to pray for revelation that we get it, right? Pray for understanding that we would know the love of God, his revelatory apostolic prayers, because, because we don't get it straight away. We, have to, we actually need to pursue the heart of God to really get it into our spirit, to understand it. And now Paul's saying, okay, I'm in prison, as a prisoner of the Lord, I want you guys to walk this thing out. Right? Walk worthy of the calling that I've just described in 1, 2, 3. Okay. And then he goes into different facets of what does this look like in terms of the church, in terms of your new life as a Christian, uh, in terms of walking in, in love, in, in community, in the fruit um, of that. We're talking about family, wives and husbands, children and parents, um, bosses, or employees and employers. He gets super practical, and then he ties it all out with... Um, the idea of um, spiritual warfare, what it looks like to engage practically in the spiritual realm, okay? But I want to focus on this idea in Ephesians 4, when Paul touches upon the, the way that he sees the church operating. Paul talks about his vision for the church. Ruth mentioned it in, um, in her session this morning, but I want to build on it, on it some further um, this afternoon. So, I want to start off by reading Ephesians 4 and verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, it, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think Ruth so beautifully painted the picture of that, how the body builds itself up in love as every joint supplies, right? You carry unique giftings for the body of Christ um, that are unique to you, okay? The point that I want to draw out this afternoon is the role of church leadership outlined in what's called the fivefold ministry. Paul describes the apostles, um, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, is to, verse 12, equip the saints for the work of ministry. This passage has been absolutely foundational to Ruth and my philosophy or theology of church leadership. This tells me that church leaders are the ones that are to equip people into their ministry or into ministry, right? I always thought growing up that to be called to ministry was to be the one with the microphone and equipping the church, right? But this is saying that people who are um, you know, called, to lead, called to leadership in the church are to equip the saints for ministry. So ministry in a biblical sense in this context is not church ministry. Ministry is outside the four walls of the church and the leadership are called to equip the saints, that's, that's yeah. you, into what you're doing in the world. Okay? I want to propose to you that the vast majority of the church, a very high percentage of the church, is called to ministry. In the sense of you're not called as a primary gifting to be a fivefold minister to equip the saints for ministry. Okay? This is just fundamental, but it's very, very important. It's very, very important because this is the structure of healthy Christian community. Unless we get this right, our community will be a vortex that sucks inward. Because the high watermark of a Christian is to become, to be the most spiritual, mature person, is to be a, in quote-unquote ministry as the church sees it, which is with a microphone, mm. right? Whereas what this is saying is, no, your leaders are serving you to release you, to equip you to be Christ in the community. It yes. equips it. Yes. Do you get it? Yeah. It's very important. It's the difference between a church that's insular and a church that's called to disciple people, regions, communities, nations. Yeah. Very, very important. So it begs the question, what is your ministry? Now I want to propose to you that this isn't by any means contrary to what Ruth's saying in terms of we are called to serve the body of Christ. It's like a family. I might not be called as a full-time occupation to be a, a dish pig, but in my home, I'm a dish pig. <laughs> I do the dishes. Do you know what I'm saying? I might not be called to stack chairs or whatever, 
but I'm a part of a family, so I participate in the affairs of the family, right? Yeah. The same thing is in the church. Like, it takes, it takes um, intentionality to contribute to a well-oiled church family, mm. right? And every joint supplies. But I want to propose to you, if you're called to run a cafe or have a business or to work in retail, I don't know, that is your ministry. You understand this? That is your ministry. And the whole idea of sacred, sacred, and divide, I'll, I'll just go there. I think it's from the pit of hell. Because the devil wants to have the church be like, have you ever seen like beacon lighting, like those like factories where there's like lots of lights? You're driving past and you're like, whoa, that's a bright building. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like there's a lot of lights. That's, that's the devil's dream. Because he can't turn the light off. Well, he can, he can, he tries to. But if he can't turn it off, he'll just... You won't scatter throughout the city. You'll be like, let's just keep it in beacon lighting factory. Like, devils yeah. will stick clear of that place. Yeah. All right? But the rest of the city is <coughs> in darkness. Yeah, that's so right? So this is really, yeah. really important stuff. The devil has a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. A lot to lose. And it's also liberating. Mm -hmm. I learned this the first time I saw this. I was 17 years old. I had just finished year 12 and I needed a job to sustain myself. And I was at Greensboro Plaza in, in Victoria, and I'm like, I had, you know, just like, oh, that awkward tenant with the folder of resumes. This feel like this is so cringe. I'm just like, I need a job with my resumes, and I'm, I'm awkward and I'm like insecure. And I'm rocking up to different retail places to, you know, handing my resume like hotcakes to try and get a job. And I remember distinctly, I sat there and I'm like, Jesus, I need a job, but I pray that my job would be a ministry. I remember praying it distinctly, right? And so I put in a resume, and one of the places was um, Athlete's Foot, you know, the, the um, shoe store? Mm. And I went in there, and oh, it just so happens that we're actually hiring. I'm like, oh, this is a good, this is a good sign. It turns out there was, they, hired, they interviewed 20 people, I got an interview, and I got the job, right? I was chuffed. My first day on the job, remember, I gave myself to be available to God, to be... Um, a ministry, right? I didn't get paid, of course, but I wanted to be able to apply this stuff. Anyway, I'm talking to my boss, um, you know, the, the shutter door's down, I'm cleaning up the shop, my boss is there, her name is Veronica, and we get talking. I forget how it came up, but we're talking about spiritual things. First shift, I'm like, whoa, this is, this is a fast acceleration of events, you know? So I'm talking, and um, she says, you know, I asked her, what, what's... What do you believe? And this is what she said. She said, well, actually, I'm a witch. <laughs> Seriously. I'm like, oh. Like, you know, when you have to act cool, but not be surprised. <laughs> actually, like, super surprised. But anyway, it turns out that in this whole era, she's, like, like a, a witch. And she, like, I, I worked there for, how long were Like, four or five years. And I have this, like, seriously, this awesome relationship with Veronica, right? We used to have the best conversations about faith, about the occult, <laughs> about all this different stuff. And you know what she said to me one time? She said she was had to hire some more staff as business was growing. She said, Dave, I want to hire more people and I want them to be exactly like you. Mm -hmm. Right? And she knew where I stood and I shared the gospel with her like clearly. And she knew right from wrong and all that kind of thing. The whole premise was in rebellion to God, right? 
But what I'm saying is I was able to share the gospel in that space because I submitted myself to the will of God, knowing that if we're to see the kingdom advance, we have to get beyond the four walls. And it begins with a different paradigm. It begins with a different paradigm. I want to tell you a story. I like stories. like stories? Stories are the best. Okay. So come with me back to the 1700s. The year is 1727. And you're in what will be now known as Eastern Germany. And um, there is a, um, a whole a multitude, a large number of refugees coming from what will be called like Bohemia or from further in the east, heading west, and they're coming into persecution, um, coming from persecution, sorry, and looking for someone to stay. And there's a guy who you may or may not have heard of by the name of Count Zinzendorf. Who's heard of Count Zinzendorf? Oh, a few people. Cool, so you guys can challenge my history if you get to it wrong. So Count Zinzendorf is, again, he's a count, so he's a guy of some social prestige. He has land. And all these refugees come onto his land, right? And um, what I've read of this, of this part of history is that there was some you know, bickering and there was some, like, different um, nationalities and kind of tensions on his property. And um, they turned to prayer, okay? And um, God's Spirit really moves in a powerful way in this community. And this, um, essentially, a, a prayer movement, discipleship movement occurred on this guy's property and a community's form. So when Ruth and I travelled the world in 2012, we actually went to this place called Herrenhut, or Herrenhut if you're German, I can't even say that properly. And that's where this community, this prayer community, was established. This is a true story. What's crazy about it is it wasn't just an ordinary community that had like a weekly prayer meeting. These guys felt in the Lord to pray continually. So they started up prayer vigils, literally a prayer meeting. And it had rosters, was quite, there was quite um, systematic construction around this, this prayerful community. And the prayer meeting didn't stop. Didn't stop for one year, two years, three years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years, over a hundred years. This prayer meeting didn't stop in a place called Herringheit in eastern Germany. Ruth and I went there. A hundred year, think about this, a hundred year. 24-7 prayer movement. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Out, of this, out of this context of like refugees and this kind of chaos and got moved and Zinzendorf and whatever. Amazing stuff. Historians believe, as I understand it, that what came out of that 100-year prayer meeting birthed the modern missions movement. The Moravians were famous for being like the most hardcore mission dudes. They're just like next level, lay their life down, what's the worst tribe in the world? Like there's stories of them um, being, um, stories of them selling themselves into slavery to go to this particular island or location where there was, they had to be a slave to get to, just to preach the gospel. These guys are like next level hardcore. They were willing to do things like that, right? Amazing. So these Moravians are on a ship, right? 
on the old boats. This is um, in 17... 36, or after 1727 they came in, 1736, they're traveling from Britain to the US, all right? And you can imagine the old ship, like, if you look, come on, the, the first, when's the first foot, 1788, so kind of like the whole like, big sails and that whole kind of, you can picture it, master and commander type of vibes. And there's a really crazy storm. And the ship is about to sink, there's like, battering and whatever, and, and people are absolutely freaking out. And there's a group of these Moravian missionaries, that must have been on some missionary journey, I don't know the context, but they were on this ship. Everyone was freaking out. And there was a man on the ship who was profoundly impacted by the peace of these Moravians. He thought he was a Christian. But when he saw the peace, of it, like, the whole ship's freaking out, and there's a group of people there that are just like, fully peaceful and calm in the midst of the storm. And it so impacted this young man by the, by the name of John Wesley that he, in that moment, he recalls in his journal, uh, when he gave his heart to the Lord, you could just say, he says he felt this, this warmth, he describes, coming into his heart by the witness of these Moravians. Wow. Okay? This is, from, this is from Wesley's journal. I love history. This is, this is John Wesley. I'll, I'll explain to you who he is in a second if you don't know he wrote this, of their humility, the Moravians, they had given a continual proof by performing these servile offices for the other passengers, so like love, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay. If they were pushed, struck down, or thrown down, they rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouth. In the midst of the psalm, um, wherein their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks, as if the great ship had already swallowed us up. A terrible scream began among the English. The Germans calmly sung. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. It's in 19, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, 1736. Wow. <laughs> These guys are like, again, hardcore. So this guy named John Wesley, he and his brother, um, John and Charles, went back to the UK and they led a massive revival, a great awakening. Right? It's absolutely profound. The state of London during that time, listen to this, let me show you a quote. In the 1750s, the church, the Church of England, had reclined to like pretty much nothing. Right? It was, it was, listen to this statistic. There was 10,000 sex workers walking the streets of London and 16 people at St. Paul's Cathedral on Easter. Wow. That's not the big you know, St. Paul's Cathedral. 16 people at the height of these, like, you think, you know, there's, there's Easter Christians that come Easter, Easter and Christmas, there's 16 of them at this time, right? This is a, this is a community in moral decline, mm. right? There's huge segregation between the rich and the poor, massive uprisings, it's like the time of like the um, French Revolution, it's, it, there's all stuff that's going on crazy, but on comes the Wesleys, with the fire of God, right, impacted by the Moravians, 
And they literally see the discipleship movement spread throughout the UK and ultimately the world. Profound, amazing, amazing things. True revival, I believe, with not talk about this, that true revival won't just be in the church. True revival will lead to reformation, impact, societal transformation in the world. Mm. Yeah. All right? Revival isn't just that beacon lighting shop with new bulbs. Mm. You know? That's great. That's, that's reviving the lamps. But true revival will result in the impact mm. of the community around it. Mm. Yeah. Okay? So Wesley is, they're seeing this moral, um, like a righteous revolution throughout the UK. Mm. Historians believe that they actually um, stopped what was coming to be a, a revolution in the UK. So France had had a revolution where, where the, the commoners had risen up against the hierarchy and the bloodshed was horrible. And they believed that it was ha- going to happen because this, the same recipe was happening in the UK. But if it wasn't for this spiritual awakening, mm. it would have happened, right? Amazing stuff. There's a connection between revival and reformation. Six days before John Wesley died, this is, to me, this blows my fuses. Six days before Wesley dies, he writes a letter to a young politician. And you see, Wesley throughout his time, he had spoken out passionately against the slave trade and slavery, right? But it was still common practice, it was ingrained in the economy, like the the, the British Empire, they say, was built on the back of slaves. The economy was built around the exploitation of these people, uh, African slave trade and slavery. And you get this old man, Wesley, whose seed is weathered with revival. He knows the heart of God. He's, he's literally seeing a, a, a missions movement and he's seeing revival in his country in many ways. And he pens this letter to a young politician named William Wilberforce six days before he dies. It's like this picture of revival being passed to reformation. Right? And I love this. He, he, it's, it's just like, you can tell, the picture I get is it's like this old kind of like sharp shooting Carl Wesley talking to this young buck, 30 year old Wilberforce, right? He says this in his, in his letter. Wilberforce, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, the others in the slave trade, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till every American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine Wilberforce? This guy's just like this, like, you imagine Wesley, like, he's like... Yeah, totally. He's got this letter from this, literally, this absolute statesman hero in the faith. He'd be just like, oh, when you read like um, Wilberforce and the whole community, 
was so impacted by Whitfield and Wesley and this whole revival. There's a whole network of people that were just like, they were on fire with the love of God, literally. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a moment, but man. So here we have this connection between revival and reformation. And if you don't know the story, man, watch Amazing Grace, the, the movie. It's absolutely amazing. How William Wilberforce, and he was just the one guy that we know of, but there was a whole community of people who were impacted by Wesley and Whitfield primarily, who were so committed to living out their faith in a practical way, not just being in a holy huddle, that they wanted to literally change the world. In their old English words, they said, we want to restore English manners, or manner, right? Which is a way of saying, bring back, I suppose, morals and, I suppose, like, righteousness to the country, right? By bringing justice where there's injustice. Righteousness where there's been wickedness. And this whole group of people, they were called the Clapham Set, or the Clapham Circle, this community of people that actually, they bought land in a place called Clapham, and they have different residences there, and literally there's like writers and creatives and business people, like the chairman of the, of the East India Company, which was running the whole operation in, the East, in, in India, is this like fiery Christian who's like mega rich and they're funding stuff, and they're literally this community of mission asking the question, how do we authentically express our faith as disciples of Christ? Why? Because we've been created for good works. Yeah. And this, if you research the Clapham sect, this group of people changed the world. The RSPCA, you know the RSPCA? Wilberforce and his mates loved animals because they believed that God made them. And they saw in that time lots of animal cruelty. And they're like, that's not, the, that's not God's way. So they, they started the RSPCA. They started with them, right? These guys revolutionised, like, um, they were involved in the whole, like, child um, work laws in terms of like, chimney sweeps, like young kids going up chimneys. They were like, changes. Sunday schools, they were pivotal in terms of working to get... Amazing! Listen to this one, though. This one actually rocked my world when I realised this. The context is, so Wilberforce got that letter... Um, in 1790, if I'm not mistaken, right? Who knows when the first came to Australia? 1788. So this is this this time in world history is like a lot is happening. There's this huge just like <coughs> nation, like just there's, there's this huge transition period in history, not unlike where we are today, and. Um, so the first fleet is, is in, in, this, in this period, right? You've got William Pitt, who's the Prime Minister of, of the greatest empire at the time in the world. You've got Wilberforce, who's on his, his, his MP. And they're all part of this Clapham set with a whole network of people, right? Literally like a world-changing community, okay? The church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ, that's right. Amen, Ruth. <laughs> And this community of people, the church, as you'd say, say, well, 
without getting, again, I don't know that politics about, you know, you can think about, um, you know, European colonisation and the negatives of that. I get all that. I don't know where these guys stood on that at the time. But what I do know is that independent of even that, they realised that there was an opportunity for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Right? And this is a powerful thing. This is a very powerful I remember I was in, in, um, in Canberra back in 2014, and I took uh, Anderson George, you might know Anderson um, from Beswick, and we went to the, to the National Day of Prayer and Fasting. There's a lot of sentiment around there about you know, Invasion Day, and, and again, it, it's very challenging, right? But Anderson gets up there at the Great Hall in Parliament House, and he's black, and he's from Arnhem Land, and everyone's like, wow, this is an Indigenous elder from Arnhem Land. And he stands up there, and he says, firstly, before I pray, I want to thank Captain James Cook for coming to my country because with it he brought the gospel wow. and I love Jesus and I wouldn't know Jesus without him. Wow. Yeah. Of course there's been atrocities and I'm so sad. Like he's had persecution, you know. But my point is the gospel was preached and he's so grateful for Jesus. Okay? So these guys, Clapham Sect, this whole crew, realize they say there's an entire, in the UK, look at the map there, there's an entire region of the world that has not heard of the gospel. So these guys, it's all documented, pulled all these strings to ensure there was a missionary on the first fleet. Wow. Amazing. Well, listen to this. Wilberforce personal connection with Pitts, they're like mates from way back, who's the, the Prime Minister, is found in a letter in, on the 15th of November, 1786, which Newton wrote to Wilberforce. Okay, so the context is um, John Newton, you know the guy Amazing Grace, that guy, he's also part of the Clapham sect. Um, there's a whole bunch of really cool people. Um, and so Newton wrote this to Wilberforce. To you, as the instrument, we owe the pleasing prospect of an opening for the propagation of the gospel in the southern hemisphere. Who can tell what important consequences may depend on Mr. Johnson going to New Holland? This is the missionary I'll tell you about, Mr. Johnson. It may seem but a small event at present. So a foundation stone, when laid, is small compared to the building to be erected upon it but it is the beginning and the earnest of the whole. Wow. What he's saying is, John Newton, the God this Amazing Grace, that song, is saying, Wilberforce, what you are doing with your buddy William Pitt is going to change the world. Wow. It's a very small thing, but we're sending the gospel to the southern hemisphere. This is like groundbreaking. We can owe our faith and the foundations of our culture and, fit and, and uh, way of life largely to, to these guys sending the gospel with the first fleet. Wow. Wow. Damn, it just messes me up. There's this guy named Richard Johnson. He was a farmer and he um, was really kind of minding his, his own business here too, had been influenced by, by Whitfield and Wesley, this whole movement, and he wanted his life to count for something. 
And then so Wilberforce contacts this guy, Richard Johnson, and says, hey, we've secured funding to get you and your wife to go to this place to be missionaries, to be chaplains, right, and to, and to share the gospel. And this is the response. I love, like, guys, just write journals. This is, like, so interesting to read this stuff centuries later. 23rd of September, 1786, this is just before the, a couple of years before they left, they're getting ready to leave. He received a negative response, the former course. I smiled and replied, no, I had no inclination or thoughts of ever leaving my native country, says this guy, Johnson. Listen to this. But Johnson did not feel, did not keep smiling and later confessed. For several nights and days, both my sleep and appetite were in great measure taken away. <laughs> That's like, that feels like. It's like, no, I'm not going. You're like, oh no. <laughs> this is a huge deal. Going on a boat full of convicts, he may not have believed in the whole process, I don't know. But he saw an opportunity to preach the gospel to people who'd never heard him before. I did little else than weep and sigh. I mean, this, this is like, I, I, I so honour this man for bringing the gospel to our country. Oh my gosh. I implored divine direction what to do in this affair of so weighty a moment. On the one hand, the idea of leaving my parents, relations, friends, and respectful, respectful connections, which I had formed, the dangers of the sea, the descriptions of the people I was going with, the place to which we were going, to the very ends of the earth, to a country wild and uncultivated, to be exposed to savages and perhaps to various wild beasts of prey. These and such like ideas so impressed my mind with fear and terror that I sometimes was greatly inclined to almost and almost resigned to, to decline the offer. But then on the other hand, when I considered the propriety, nay the necessity of some person going in this capacity, how the offer of the appointment was made to me, my situation at the time, having no charge of my own, the hopes and prospects of being rendered useful in the reformation of these poor and abandoned people, the power and the promises of God to protect me and me in any place or situation wherein, in the line of duty, I followed the leading of providence and the prospects of a glorious reward hereafter. Laid up in heaven for all God's faithful servants and people, these considerations overbalanced and removed all my scruples and fears and induced me to give my free consent to enter upon this hazardous expedition. Wow. That's a journal entry of a man who said yes so that we could have a nation with a Christian heritage. They didn't do it in a vacuum. There was an entire community of people working, contributing their thing. From the Prime Minister down, all these different levels of community who were convinced and believed that we could see society changed. And I don't know about you, but there's so much fear in our culture right now. There's so much fear even in the church. COVID and this and that and the other. I'm not saying we don't need to be uneducated or unaware, but we need to have hope. Mm -hmm. We need to be the solution to the problems that are here and that are coming. Mm -hmm. 
words, with every crisis is opportunity. God is calling us to not only be in a holy huddle and be a happy, insular community, because the world out there is such a bad place. Oh my gosh. God is calling us to be a community on mission. God is calling you to realise the thing that burns in your heart the passion that you have. God wants to infuse you with divine wisdom to represent him in that space. And the role of church and church leadership is to equip you to mature manhood, to be mature in, to grow up into the headship of Christ, to represent him in your area of influence, to be salt and light. To let your light shine. What does it say? Um, so that men will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christians are called to be solution seekers. Mm-hmm. I want to close with this last story. This has been Ruth and my uh, message in our church in Darwin. Ephesians 4 is really important to us. Equipping the saints, equipping the saints. And uh, in 2018... We really felt like the Lord tapped us on the shoulder and said, okay, you guys have been praying and equipping people. Now I want you to go and put legs on your, on your own prayers. I want you to pivot away from being, you know, in terms of the equipping of the saints. I want you to go and model being a saint in the marketplace. Right. And so that began a journey for us where we uh, essentially transitioned out of our senior leadership role in our church and um, I got involved in politics and just governance in, in that sense in the territory because I believe that we needed to have two, two reasons. One is I wanted to be able to reach politicians for Jesus. And two, I wanted to be able to contribute to good governance and to see um, politics from God's perspective and see policies that reflect the Father's heart. And so we went on this crazy journey of pursuing this step by step by step. And uh, oh, I had the privilege of partnering with a, a Christian man who also is involved in politics. And uh, long story short, I ended up as a campaign manager for the last territory election of one of his political parties. And I'm asking myself the question, what does it look like to represent Christ in this space? And again, Ruth and I got to love on some amazing people. Again, the, one of the campaign directors was a very challenging personality. We were able to release this love and forgiveness <laughs> in very tense situations. But there was this one situation where... Um, is this being recorded? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's okay. Um, we were really short on money, right? And in political campaigns, they kind of they need finances to run. And there was a business person who wanted to donate, but the thing about political donations is once they cross a certain threshold, you need to declare them, right? So that people know where the money's coming from, right? But if you just give cash, then 
like how are you supposed to trace it, right? So I remember that I'm a campaign manager and my, one of my bosses um, in the campaign team comes up with a bag <laughs> of cash, right? <laughs> like wads of like $50, no, sorry, heaps. Boof on my desk. And they start, I said, what do I do, what do, I do with this? Uh, where this come from? Oh, from someone's like businessman who doesn't want to doesn't want to um, declare it, but he wants to give it you know to event the cause. Now, in that moment, like it's actually we were short on money, like really I'm paying all the bills, right? And I'm like, oh, gee, like. You've got to give it anyway. Like, how, how important is it to declare? Literally, these are the thoughts going through my mind, present tense, right? And I'm like, I said to the person, my senior, so I, what am I, supposed to do? I can't do this. And then I'm processing, processing, processing. I had my, my offside of my, my PA was a Christian, right? And I'm like, this doesn't seem right. So I, I, I pulled um, Grace, <laughs> cool name, <laughs> my offside out of the office. <laughs> Because like in, my boss is like writing out where to put the money and different things and what have you. And um, oh my gosh, it's so cool. Grace is like, oh my gosh, I had a dream. We're talking about dream. This is when it happened. <coughs> right? And it's like full on, like just revealed the, the whole situation. And I'm like, this is exactly that. But now what do I do? Because if I tell my boss, I'm like, oh, what do I, like, how do I not dishonor them? But keep the challenging kind of just keep the peace in terms of this whole situation, right? So, what I did was um, I got the number of this businessman, I rang him up, and I said, Firstly, I just honored him. I said, You are so generous, we so need your money, and we so appreciate your donation. But we can't receive it as it has been offered. If you'd like to donate, then Here's how you can do it. And I went back to his massive big mansion and with his bag of money and I said, here you go. Right? Yeah. That like was a testimony to him. Mm. And I believe in the spirit mm. of righteousness mm. in that space. Mm. Right? And again, no one, this is the first time I've shared that story, but no one, it wasn't like it was like, and then after that, a hundredfold money came in. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was something really, really little. But my point is, imagine if like hundreds and hundreds of Christians got involved in politics and walked out in, in integrity and righteousness. What would that mean for our nation? In any industry, if people just walked out their Christian faith with integrity, and the, the, the idea of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is talking about how then shall we live. Because it's what we do, it's also how we do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Very, very important. You've been created for good works, yes. But the way that we express those good works is extremely important. Mm -hmm. So then, after all that, COVID hits and the whole campaign, like, politically goes to custard, right? Because people don't want to see change mm -hmm. when, there's a, when there's a global pandemic and uncertainty. So everyone lost their jobs and lost like a lot of money. It was very, very, very difficult. Um, so God works all things for the good. And that, long story short, resulted in Ruth and myself being able to having the opportunity to pray, reconsider things and seek the Lord to move down to South Australia. 
Okay? Is that, is that context? <laughs> like, thank you, Jesus, for that custard. <laughs> um, anyway, so again, this same burn revelation to be the church, to equip the saint, to, to be equipped to model what ministry looks like, okay? So we started a business with our friends from Sydney. We're managing people's B&B. It's called Run My B&B, okay? And we're like, we, we really believe that God has obliterated the sacred secular divide and he's called us to start a business and represent him in that business, make money for our family, to be, to be blessed, to be a blessing, and to do a business God's way. Okay? Still encourage people who are called to business. So we get, we get cracking. Right? We have an opportunity to, to, to get it started. And Ruth and I are praying and praying and praying and submitting our business to the Lord, okay? Because we want to pray just like we plant a church. If we believe that the sacred sector divide thing's broken, then, hey, let's believe that, like we pray to birth the church, we'll pray to birth the business. And so we get, I'm like hustling, I'm working really hard and looking, you know, getting our first few houses. And then this person rings me. And through this kind of through, through a few connections, there's this guy who is based in Melbourne who has a company similar to ours but manages properties um, in like the Barossa and like a borough like North. And anyway, long story short, this is an amazing opportunity for us to be able to take on some properties of his. This guy's name is Kim. I'm like, and it was just awesome. Praise God. Well, our business has got a bit of a boost from a you know very small little fragile thing getting started. About two months or three months later, I get a, I get a phone call. Hi, David. Um, this time it's a female lady, and she says, um, I'm from this company who I knew from being also down with Flurio, which is like essentially competition, really. And I'm like, oh, hey, how are you going? Good, good. He goes, oh, I'm actually downsizing my portfolio of properties, and I thought that you might want to take on my properties for like a really good. Um, essentially like a sales kind of commission type thing. And I'm like, oh great, let's talk more, go for a coffee. Anyway, so it turns out that there's a really amazing opportunity for our business to get established through these two things. But the thing that caught Ruth and myself off, like interested us, was that the second person's name was also Kim. All right, well, this is weird. Like one guy named Kim, one girl named Kim. <laughs> and they're both helping us with our business. And they've found us, right? So I do what all spiritual people do to find the will of God is to put it into Google and to work out what the name Kim means, right? So after looking up what the name Kim means, I'm absolutely blown away. When I looked up on Google what the name meaning of Kim is, in Hebrew it means Yahweh establishes. Wow. And it's like, awesome. God, God is establishing our business. Look, God cares about business. He cares about it. And now we've been able to like employ our first person. Wow. Right? And I'm telling her, her name's Deb, you can pray for her. And she's just like, I can tell, it's still, she started, started this month. She's trying to work us out. And I said, like, we're Christians, we love you, we pray, we make our decisions, or what have you. And um, she's just like, 
she's coming alive but she's in an environment that that's positive mm. and able to like lead her well and she's just like loving her role she's just a time bomb to receive jesus but my point is it's fun the high water mark of a christian isn't just to be in ministry if you're called to ministry that's very very important and you are due double honor the bible says but the majority of the church is not called to ministry as we understand it. Mm. You're called to ministry as the Bible understands it. Mm. And as we do that, guys, we'll see revival and reformation. Mm. We'll walk in the shadows, or we'll walk in the shadows of people like Wilberforce, people like Wesley, that have literally shaped nations. And represented Christ. Mm -hmm. I believe that the best is yet to come for our nation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As the church rises up with hope for the message of truth, God will move in our midst. Mm -hmm. Can I get the band up quick? I want us a lot of opportunity to pray, to pray for each other, to pray um, together. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
for a few minutes. And then during that time, if you just like, as a combat point of faith, want to come forward, you don't have to, you can take your chair, but I would encourage you, as a combat point of faith, we can come forward and we can pray together with you for the dreams that are in your heart, if you would like. Just believe that God will move in our midst, hey?